This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's bring in Doug Ramsey. He's Chief Investment Officer of the Luthold Group, based in Minneapolis, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. So, Doug, you kind of laugh because I feel like it is every time you come, it's some big move uh, in the markets. What do you make of what has been a week where, very quickly, we got a technical 10% correction? It's interesting, and I don't have any uh, superior information on how the coronavirus is going to unfold, but what I would say is let's look at how this thing was set up just a week and a half ago. Most of our valuation work was uh, 95th percentile historically or above, right. not just the S&P 500, but the market broadly. Um, sentiment. Uh, got by far to its frothiest level of the entire cycle. In fact, we got to a 20-year extreme on one of the retail options measures that we track. So we were thinking, you know, you could have a 6 to 8 percenter on zero news. And, of Mm -hmm. course, you know, this whole field of narrative economics, I was listening to that. You might also call it rationalization economics. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this need to assign a cause. And we thought all it takes is for someone to perceive – existing news in a somewhat less favorable light and you're right. going to get the six to eight percent well lo and behold we've had news that we've really never seen before quite frankly in the in the history of the markets you know we've had wars and markets have sort of figured out how the market discounts and right. and deals with those uh, so i don't know but it's just in terms of and not to minimize the the human cost here but this news came at the absolute worst time in the cycle from a sentiment perspective and from the perspective of some of the economic numbers already showing some teetering. And I know there's been mixed messages here in the last couple months. Looked like maybe we were going to get a little bit of factory bounce at the same time. Some of the jobs numbers like the Jolts survey Mm -hmm. confirmed by some of the other survey jobs numbers saying, well, maybe the weakness is spreading beyond manufacturing. And unfortunately, I think What is likely to happen here, I mean, the thing that has, and we've been cautious, and I'd love to say, oh boy, we just got cautious 10 days ago, but we've been Mm -hmm. uh, cautious for a while based on valuation, sentiment, economic cycle, all that stuff. I think what's very likely here is, regardless of how the coronavirus plays out, I think this is a significant enough hit to wealth and confidence and a vulnerable state that I think it's pretty likely it's going to drive us into recession over the next six to nine months. I do. And so do you become then more cautious with how what you buy and sell here? What do you do in in the face of this? Well, the not entirely unique, but I, I think in the mutual fund world, the way we structure our core fund has helped us this week in that we have longs and shorts. So the longs have gone down, the shorts have gone up, and I, yeah. we're about 42% invested right now, long, net long equities. Okay. We've had some gold, which worked well until today. Yeah. Uh, we've had longer duration on the bonds, which people thought we were crazy for maintaining, and it certainly helped here in the last couple of weeks, but we're, we could be as high as 70%. Now, we'll have to take a look at some of the carnage at the end of this week. It's possible we could tactically 
lift a hedge. I mean, if you're looking for a playable bounce here, I mean, if you are more tactical, I think the surprising thing to me is it's been the most overvalued and speculative large cap growth stocks that have held up pretty well. I mean, they're down with the market, but I thought, right. you know, they might, they really have not taken a relative beating yet. So I think a tell that maybe we're in a, a liquidation phase for at least the first bottom being put in is when you maybe see the QQQs just get clobbered one day down two or 3% and you see like small caps in the cyclical stocks up. I think that will be a tell that there's maybe a multi-percentage point bounce to the upside. Yeah, I think, you know, to some extent, shame on all of us, right? We've been talking about how, how expensive the market has gotten, right? Based on the earnings outlook, the fundamentals, and so on and so forth. So, you know, to some extent, like you said, we're, I almost feel like we were just waiting for something to take the market down because that's certainly what we've seen over the last couple of years yeah. when we run up too much, all of a sudden we almost kind of look for something to take us down yeah. and it happens dramatically. If though, so based on that, since you say the market was pricey with or without the virus, so once we start to get an idea of the virus, hopefully sooner rather than later, being contained and the spread, what happens to the market? Do we bounce back as much or no, because it was expensive yeah, before? Yeah, I, I think I'd certainly look for some days in the weeks ahead where, I mean, some of these bear market rallies, I mean, if you look at the greatest one-day gains in the history of the stock market, 80 to 90% of them occur within the context of a cyclical bear market. It's yeah. just you're in an emotionally charged environment. Right. So, Are we going into a bear market? I think it's very likely. I mean, you yeah. are almost down. If you look at like the average stock, we like to use this value line arithmetic uh, index. I mean, the, the transports are almost down 20% from their peak, yeah. which was made um, – a year and a half ago in September. Yeah. So we've we already have inflicted a lot of damage on the average stock. And incidentally, I mean, it's generally the blue chips that hold up the best and sort of mask the damage until the very end. So when you finally get the final washout in the Dow and the S&P, usually the bear markets, I mean, they, maybe that's the silver lining here. But I, I, I do think it's likely, and it's partly here an economic call. And it's, again, yeah. our view is that, um, I mean, the great market-based forecasters of the economy, the stock market and the yield curve, they're good forecasters for a unique reason. They play a role in the right. outcome of the economy. Yeah. So right. right here, the yield curve inversion, it, I mean, the yield curve is telling you right. the 10-year is, or the, the three-month bill is 40 basis points too high. I we think it's probably going to cause a recession. Doug Ramsey, always smart, always love when you're with us. Thank you so much. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's head down south just a little bit, Washington, D.C. Kevin Cirilli is there. He's our chief Washington correspondent, uh, hardest working man in Hollywood, especially this time of year, this time of the election cycle. I wish I was in Hollywood. Thank you for saying that. You've got a a Hollywood vibe about you, Kev. Come on. You're a star. You know, I don't know if that's helping me these days. But listen, no, seriously. Thank you. Thank you for saying that, Jason and Carol, because I love coming on and I look up to both of you. Oh, well, you're very sweet. Uh, So tell us what's going on. What are we looking ahead to tomorrow? Uh, Look, South Carolina primary. Former Vice President Joe Biden, his campaign is saying uh, that this is going to be the start of their comeback uh, and that they are going to use this as momentum heading into the Super Tuesday contest. So, uh, look, they've got to perform and they've got to win big, quite frankly, because they've said that this is going to be uh, the area where they are going to be able to unite African-American support. Uh, and, and in hearing from top 
uh, officials in the African-American community, including, including Congressman Clyburn, who came mm. out and endorsed Biden, uh, they feel that they are really prepared to, to launch Biden uh, into Super Tuesday. Are they right? You know, look, I, I, I think that if Biden wins big in South Carolina this weekend, uh, it will put a lot of pressure on other more moderate right. candidates to reevaluate their path forward. Right. Well, and it's interesting you say that because David West and I were chatting just off air as we were switching over. And, and that was one of the things he said was that sort of pressure on the moderates, on the other moderates in the field. But do they really have any incentive, given what we've seen so far? And I'm thinking of, you know, Buttigieg and Klobuchar and others to, to really get out. No, but at least not until Super Tuesday. But I yeah. can tell you this, just in terms of where this is headed, expect the stories for the second half of next week from Wednesday to Friday of next week to on the 2020 political front to be about who's going to get out of the race yeah. and who's going to endorse who. Uh, so the field, I predict, based upon my reporting, will winnow uh, in about a week from now, literally a week from now, um, as a post Super Tuesday happens. How and much, who do you think it's well, going to be? And how much of it has to do with money? Ugh. Well, so I, I think it has to do with money, but for different reasons. I mean, when you look at someone like former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, you know, it's well known that he has a, a large amount of money. When you look at Tom Steyer as well, these more self-funded candidates. But is it a smart investment for them? So I think that will start to come into play. I, uh, and then when you look at the other more moderate candidates who are, in effect, the CEOs of small companies like Klobuchar, Buttigieg, uh, uh, to some extent Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, I think they're going to have to have a, a conversation about whether or not they can continue to sustain. I, I, I think beyond that, though, that, there, that this race for 1,991 delegates, the Sanders campaign is going to start laying groundwork yeah. of, look, if we can't get 1991, but we get X amount and we right. don't know what the X amount is yet, then that'll, that'll help them. All right, and let's just remind everybody, of course, Michael Bloomberg is uh, running, too, to get that Democratic nomination um, for president. Uh, and uh, we should point out that Michael Bloomberg, of course, is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg News, and Bloomberg Radio. So, Kevin, we got to talk a little bit about uh, the virus news and how Washington yep. and President Trump and his team have dealt with it. Uh, there's a fair amount of criticism. There is. Uh, so, look, I was just at the White House earlier today. Uh, everyone's talking about the coronavirus and mm. the administration from their point, Carol, they were out in full force uh, today trying to calm markets as well as calm the concerns of the American people. You had Mick Mulvaney, the president's current acting chief of staff, speaking at CPAC. Uh, he said that he got a text message from a reporter that says, uh, what, what are you doing to calm the, the markets? And he replied, I wish I could tell everyone, turn off cable news. And so that's, you know, some rhetoric coming from the administration. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo also spoke at CPAC, but also testified on Capitol Hill. He faced tough questions from Democrats who are pressing him on that regard. But he said that the administration, he feels, remains, quote unquote, fully prepared uh, to handle with this. And they're now pushing the, the response to the criticism that they're getting from Democrats. They're saying that their first meetings about the coronavirus in particular actually started about a month and a half, two months ago uh, during the impeachment saga. So you're hearing that. So I want to be careful here because Leader Schumer 
or, uh, and Speaker Pelosi have released statements criticizing the administration's handling of this. That's the political forecast. Right. Yeah. But I want to divorce it from the policy for just a second. Only got about 20 week, seconds here, Kev. I'll give you it in 10. Next week, bottom line, $2.5 billion is going to likely be approved from Congress to move the money through. All okay. right. Kevin Cirilli, you're the best. Chief Washington Correspondent, as I said, hardest working man in Hollywood. That was the Hollywood. greatest individual taking a time cue. I know. He's Beautiful. the best. He knows what he's doing. I All right. Know. Chief Washington Press Correspondent up. for Bloomberg Radio and TV. Also the host of Bloomberg Sound On. Money's only paper, only All right. I have to say, as soon as I heard that this story was in the works by Austin Carr and Nico Grant, it was one of those like sort of rub your hands together, just like get ready for this because it's going to be a tale. I knew that it was a good story. They did such a magnificent job on it. It's about Xerox and HP. Austin Carr here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Joel Weber, the editor of Business Week. He's joining us from our 99-win studio in Washington, D.C. AC, I want to start with you. First, congrats on this story. What a tale. What you, you sort of came into this. What did you expect to find and what did you find about this saga? You know, it's interesting. When I went in, I think I was um, expecting to find that printers were, frankly, really, really boring. But it turns out every engineer who's ever worked How on these. Pr- I know. I'm so sorry. Um, Don't but you see I, the pile around me? I print there's, my Actually, there are, if I'm looking right now, two to three printers in this room right now. Carol is single-handedly keeping the printer business in business. I do, however, recycle Jason Kelly. Well, that that's recycle. good. Yeah. Jason, you, you might find this interesting, but actually, uh, there, it's estimated that 3.2 trillion pieces of paper are printed every year. I'm sure 50% by by Carol. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that just gives you a signal of how big this business is, and also how sort of how much innovation or robotics go into these printers, and also the ink that goes into this. I mean, chemists work on this stuff for years to sort of refine the ink, make it colorful and vibrant. I know that sounds very very uh, wonky at this time to talk about, but uh, it actually is hugely profitable, and that's the other surprising part of the story. That there's now a $35 billion hostile takeover fight by Xerox uh, when it comes to HP with the backing of uh, Carl Icahn over printers. Which, just like get your mind about, around it, because HP put out its earnings this week, right? But the big headline was the $15 billion stock buyback, and that was seen, and I think it's going to do $8 billion in the first year. The big thing was this was to fend off maybe that hostile takeover. Totally right. I talked to uh, the CEO of HP, Enrique Loras, right after the call, and, and he told me he was, quote, pumped up uh, just with the plan. I mean, yeah. he, he really, so we're investors. Exactly. He, he also said on the call, uh, you know what, uh, Austin, I don't want to go to war with uh, Xerox. And I think he is, at the same time, fighting a battle to fend them off. He wants to stop a hostile takeover, and that's what he's engaging in, and that's what these buybacks are about. All right, can we talk about Uncle Carl in, in all of this? I mean, what a fascinating... <laughs> player. I mean, so well known as an activist investor, but usually he's pretty clearly on one side and sort of backing that and going after uh, sort of keeping his eye on the prize, I should say. Here it's a little more complicated. It, it is because he owns significant stakes both in HP and in Xerox. And for, based on Bloomberg's reporting over the past couple of months, it does appear like he's playing both sides. He's really pushing Xerox uh, to go after this deal. At the same time, he's had contact with HP to say he's open to various forms, even HP potentially reversing things and, and acquiring Xerox, which is a much tinier company. But he does have 
have a very clear idea of who he wants to run the company. The, right? he, he would prefer the CEO of Xerox uh, to be uh, overseeing things. He seems to trust that management team more than HP, which, uh, to be honest, you know, a lot of the sources that we talked to, one of the big threads of the story is whether or not both of these companies, which were pioneers of 20th century innovation, right. are now just addicted to ink profits and sort of the dying printer industry, even though it still remains massive and very lucrative, which, of course, is appealing to someone There's like so Uncle Carl. so many wonderful nuggets in the story. I like how you call them, like, temples of engineering a half a century ago. And, but that was exactly right. So who would have thought that this is where these two companies were, you know, would be? But I do wonder about two companies that maybe some would say are in potentially a, uh, a dying business. I don't know if that's the right word. You know, if you put them together, do you just get a larger company that's in kind of a yesterday business? But yeah. is that good enough? Right. Well, one know. of the analysts that we talked to had questioned whether or not th this is the same as two garbage trucks colliding. Um, and the funny thing about that was uh, when we talked to HP sources, one of them, who's a longtime HP faithful, uh, basically said, you know what? Uh, waste management, the garbage industry is still massive. And so... So you're right, right, right. You still make a lot of money. Who cares if it's not sexy, <laughs> they would say. Right. We're still printing money. And so what about the rest of the market that they're a part of? Because as you say, you know, these are sort of holdover um, type companies, you know, legacy companies. If I think we joked when we were talking about this, I think if like you talked to my 1980 self, I'd be like, oh, Xerox. Yeah. I mean, I no, was, totally. I was a Both young man, but I was precocious. Um, <laughs> you know, Surprise. You weren't even born. Um, but, you know. Has the rest of the market sort of fallen away? Are they the last men standing? Or where are they seeing the most pressure other than just like history? Well, on the HP side, I can speak to that, which is that they're really very much, um, you know, addicted again to their their printer division. Yeah. That that come that brings in about twelve point nine billion dollars in revenue last year. Uh, overall, it represents about sixty three percent of their profits. And let's not forget, they have a massive PC business. They're one of the, either you know consistently right. in number one or number two when it comes to Lenovo, way ahead of Apple and market share on the PC side. But but the thing is, are people using printers as much anymore? Are they getting sick of spending money? on ink cartridges. I mean, I, I'm sure you guys have been to Staples and had to spend 50 bucks on, you know, uh, re-upping an ink at some point. We actually found a printer that, I can't remember who makes it, makes it, but the printing, you don't have to replace, it's like a liquid printer yes. and it lasts yeah. so much longer. Well, I'm glad Which you brought that up. for you. <laughs> that, that, that is the big thing. It's their, their say, where they're seeing pressure is on these knockoff ink cartridges from, from Asia, uh, you know, sort of generic or even counterfeit products that yeah. can still work in HP products. But, um, you know, we got to, it's important to point out that printers actually lose money each time they're sold and they make up for it over two to three years on ink sales so if people stop buying hp ink they're gonna lose a lot of money so now the what? razors and the razor blades so now what well you know it was funny going to enrique laura as the ceo and just you know talking to him about uh what's called the hp way that's their sort of uh the way they describe their internal innovation and commitment to creativity and he started there in 1989 as an engineering intern he yeah. bleeds hp blue yeah and uh this is someone who still defends the research and development they do he really talks up the future as being 3d printing um you know they they, they printed more than i think 18 million production parts last year which are made of either plastic or metal they work with companies like volkswagen uh and bmw i believe but it's uh, not really happening yet is it, it, it it's, it's, it's definitely not going to make up anytime soon yeah. for declines in ink profits. But at the same time, that's where they say the future is.
Yeah, it's interesting too. I'm glad you brought that up uh, about Laura's because, as you point out, as you guys point out in the story, you know, the first lifer uh, to become CEO in two decades. And listen, this is a company that has such a rich history, essentially helped create Silicon Valley. I mean, it gets yeah. credit as, you know, just being the core of it all. It, it is the arguably the first garage startup in yeah. Silicon Valley. In fact, if you go to the garage, which is still standing, it's wood. It used to have a dirt floor where they started this company, uh, uh, Hewlett and Packard. Uh, it has a plaque on it that says birthplace of Silicon Valley. And so actually Enrique Laura's after he was elevated to CEO in November, the first staff meeting he, hold, uh, he, he held, he told me, was in that garage with his staff. And he wanted them to get thinking back to that HP way, back to that garage mentality. Uh, because you're right, they have to start thinking about uh, the products of tomorrow rather yeah. than the products of yesterday. Right, go back to look, like to start thinking about the forward. It's uh, a great story. Guys. Great, great read. Good, good, Thank good. you so much. Thanks, Austin guys. Carr, tech reporter for Bloomberg, co-author of a big feature in this week's magazine. Check it out. He and Nico Grant put it together. You worked Very all timely. last weekend. You know, like, get I know. Together. <laughs> you need Clorox to all fabric bleach. Is it better? Nothing's better for getting colors that are cleanest. Yeah, but check out this gravy stain. Clorox to strong enough to get out that tough stain. No other dry bleach can beat it. Oh. You'll see. All right, that's a pretty old commercial uh, for Clorox. Um, yeah, taking us back here. So who'd have thunk Clorox beating most of the stocks out there? Uh, virus concerns, I guess, makes some sense. And who'd have thunk Bob Iger of Disney would have stepped down abruptly this week as CEO? So here to talk about them both because she's written two fascinating columns. Tara LaChapelle, she's Deals Telecom and Media Columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Would you say she's on the who'd have thunk beat? She's on the who'd have thunk. <laughs> and I'm so proud of myself in that introduction. I know. You're like, can I do this, please? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So who'd have thunk Clorox? Let's start with that story. Um, the share price doing really well? It was up until today. So uh, yesterday, they were the third biggest gainer in the S&P 500, which it kind of stood out as unusual because the top two were, I think, Regeneron and Gilead, which are drug makers that I believe are working towards some mm -hmm. sort of coronavirus treatment. I don't know as much about that. But then you saw Clorox, and it was up quite a bit uh, mid-afternoon yesterday. And it was just kind of funny to me because uh, Clorox, you know, a lot of people think that they're going to have this big sales boost because they sell bleach-based disinfectants and wipes, and they also supply uh, the healthcare industry. Right. So there's, you know, a lot of reason to think that their sales would go up if this scare, you know, comes to the U.S. in a big way. Uh, however, I, I kind of second-guess the gains because Clorox itself is a pretty slow-growth company. They've had some issues the past year with their other businesses, such as they have a charcoal business, Kingsford Charcoal, and they make the Glad trash bags, which they had priced them a lot higher than their competitors and lost a bunch of market share. So it's not really a business that is you know, fast-growing and deserves this really rich PE multiple that they have right now, and it's a lot higher than the other consumer products companies. And I think today, investors are starting to kind of realize that because the stock is now down along with the rest of the market. Right, shot up, and then now it's shot yep. down. Uh, all right, can we talk about Disney? Like, yeah, I really like that story, but I was obsessed <laughs> with this uh, column that you wrote earlier in the week because uh, you said Disney's next $180 billion won't come easy. Bob Iger goes out on a high note before the streaming wars and coronavirus threatened to derail the stock. Uh, Tara, I was in L.A. I was quoting this to everybody uh, who I was talking to because everybody was talking about this particular story. 
was did this immediately pop into your mind as soon as you saw the Iger news to give us the behind the scenes so here. I think when I first got the press release dropped in my inbox on Tuesday evening my thought was oh no is Iger sick is there another me too scandal coming to Hollywood and of course that's not what ended up happening thank goodness um it just seems like they accelerated this succession plan thinking about it overnight and the next day and seeing how badly the market was reacting to the coronavirus fears and just knowing what I know about Disney and their streaming plans this year and just how hard of a year it's going to be I thought to myself you know it is probably a really good time for Iger to step aside you know why would he kind of stay for this final chapter and let his final chapter not tarnish Mm -hmm. but just make the rest of his legacy you know overshadow it a bit a a really winning quarterback who stays too long right yeah one extra year that you should have not played (laughs) exactly so this was kind of a good solution in that he's staying on as executive chairman in this sort of amorphous role where he's going to be working on the creative side a very vague description he gave and I think it's so that he can stick around finish out his final 22 some odd months but not be the CEO who he has to answer to Wall Street over the next few months as coronavirus affects their cruise ships their theme parks all over the world they've already had to close the Shanghai resort I believe the Tokyo one so as that starts to happen and as Disney plus and the streaming wars really start to take Mm -hmm. hold it just seems like it made sense for him to move aside well and it is gonna be sort of a tough time I mean certainly and it's also hard to top what he's done right. I mean during this I mean that's the other thing is like literally I mean have it, I think we've both read the book like yeah. how do you top uh, you haven't read the book I haven't read the book <laughs> it's on All my right. to-do list because I know anyway, it's a great book you read the right of a lifetime and yeah. you're like okay the Marvel but acquisition but I followed the company like, yeah. he has mastered bringing in different brands spreading across the different platforms but also let, letting them keep their identity and I think a lot of other CEOs have not been so good at doing things like that I mean, he really restored Disney to its heyday, if not better. I think, you know, he's become the face of Disney almost to the degree that Walt Disney was. I mean, people love Bob Iger, people inside the company, outside the company, shareholders. And he's done so many smart acquisitions that have really just made this company what it is today. And I think, you know, like you said, he's going out on such a high note because last year they had the highest grossing film of all time with Avengers Endgame, which was the culmination of that big Marvel acquisition, right? So we're seeing, you know, Star Wars, every, every film is a hit. And so I think, you know, looking at that it's it's like you know why stick around when these next few months are going to kind of take away from some of that excitement all right well two great columns two great takes uh made us smarter on the huda thunk beat uh tara la chapelle come on you know you want to be on the huda thunk beat. i know it's, it's like fantastic my, it's like the woa beat it's like the or wait, what beat, beat. <laughs> it's like, that's carol in a nutshell yeah that's really we just <laughs> distilled carol's entire livelihood uh down uh, into one thing tara la chapelle thank you so much entertainment telecom and deals calmness great, great, great for writing. bloomberg opinion check that out i'm driving in my car I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This 
is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, it is time for the drive to the close, man. Many investors are going to be very happy to wrap up this week. Uh, Brad McMillan is back with us, Chief Investment Officer, Managing Principal at Commonwealth Financial Network on the phone from Waltham, Massachusetts. So, Brad, nice to have you here. Crazy week. Uh, technically, we've gotten that 10% correction and more on the major equity averages. Really no place to hide in this marketplace. How do you see it? What were some of the flows, investor calls uh, that you've been dealing with this week? You know, it's interesting because what we saw earlier in the week was people really looking to take advantage of the sell-off, buy on the dips. And just in the past, just since yesterday, we've really seen that to switch over more towards fear. Mm. But at the same time, we're not actually seeing that activity in the indices. We're not seeing that accelerate. So I wonder, you know, are we getting close to the bottom? I think we may be. Why? Because we're looking at what I would consider to be peak fear. I mean, right now we're pretty much pricing in massive expansion of the infections pretty much around the world, here in the U.S., in Italy, and that might happen, but again, the damage is largely being done. If things turn out better over the weekend, because the World Health Organization is following this, you know, the CDC is following this, then there's a possibility to realize maybe things aren't quite that bad. Well, that's a very optimistic uh, note. Do you, what do you see in the market or has the market sort of cottoned to that idea yet? We've seen signs, you know, we saw some signs yesterday that the market was starting to think about things and then then the news from California came out. And we saw signs earlier today that, you know, maybe we were actually starting to move back up. You know, I think we saw the NASDAQ get pretty, yeah, we saw the NASDAQ actually get positive there for a little bit. So there's some signs that um, we're not getting the knee-jerk panic that um, characterized most of yesterday. Not now, knee-jerk, people, wait, I, Brad, but not knee-jerk panic, but we are, like yesterday, I know what you, you know, we do tend to finish uh, at our lows of the session, though, it looks like. But we're not today, interestingly. Not, yeah, not so far, so... Yeah. And when you factor in what's going on, I mean, today's a Friday. Do you want to be long going into the weekend? No. I don't think so. I was actually concerned it was going to be a lot worse today, partially for that reason. Yeah. It's the end of the month, so you've got monthly rebalancing going on. Certainly, you know, any of the ETFs that are looking to rebalance at the end of the month, there's going to be some selling going on there. And even with those tailwinds, even as we go into the close, that's the thing. It's not that it's good. Obviously, it's not good, but it's not as bad as it might have been. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I take your point, Brad, because you know I'm sitting here looking at a chart of the NASDAQ today, and as you say, it did pop into, just for a few minutes, into positive territory. But more notably, you know, even since we started the show at, at 2 p.m., it, it came up again, it came down, it came up, um, now down about 1.4%. Now, still a miserable week, to your point, um, and obviously the in the technical correction territory, uh, across the board that Carol mentioned uh, at the top. So I, I, I am curious, and Carol, I think, alluded to this in her opening question. Your clients, your customers, you know, big and small, they're calling you this week. How are they feeling about this? What are they asking you? Well, like I say, initially it was more, you know, we have to stay calm, and even how do we take advantage yeah. of this? People are getting more and more worried, and 
generally speaking, when the retail investors really start to get worried, that means that the news has pretty much gotten out right. as much as it can get out. Right. So, you know, at that point, that says to me, okay, you know, maybe maybe we're getting close to everybody knowing about this, and maybe we're getting close to it being priced in. So give me an idea, Brad, what kind of um, headline activity over the weekend would make you be a bit more nervous? I think if we saw cases in Italy get markedly worse, that would indicate that Europe might be more at risk. I think if we saw breakouts in other countries in Europe, particularly in Germany, I think if we saw confirmed breakouts here in the U.S., Mm -hmm. that would obviously rattle U.S. markets. But I think to take the flip side of that, I mean, we've seen we've seen new infection rate in China drop dramatically. My question is, if we see the same behavior elsewhere in the world, you know, when if we saw infection rates start to roll over in any of the countries in South Korea, for example, or Italy, that would be a positive sign. Right. I get, you know, it's interesting you say that because one of the things I said to Carol at one point off air was this notion of, yes, we have seen that really abate in China. But China took some very extreme measures to get to that point in terms of quarantines, essentially shutting down a, a city and in many cases, a, a pro, or in, in some sense, a province in the Hubei province and city of Wuhan. So you do wonder uh, how well the rest of the world is going to be able to contain it without such extreme measures. And that's certainly that's certainly a concern. But at the same time, at least the developed parts of the rest of the world have much better health infrastructure right. to take care Fair. of us. They have a much smaller infectious-based control. So I acknowledge the headwinds, absolutely, but there's also some very real tailwinds here. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Principal for Commonwealth Financial Network, joining us on the phone from Waltham, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.